You're listening to Asbury University's Chapel Podcast, recorded live from our campus in Wilmore, Kentucky. Asbury's Chapel Service hosts speakers from around the world to inspire academic excellence and spiritual vitality. We hope you enjoy today's message. I want to tell you about my 10th class reunion. So uh, moderate size high school class that I was a part of, 130, 140 people. Uh, you know, size where you kind of knew everybody's name, but maybe didn't know everybody. There were five or six people that I had stayed really in touch with and uh, spent plenty of time with. And um, there were lots of people I had not seen. And I had some serious change in my life because it was at the end of college, my senior year, uh, that I became a Christian, radically altered my life. So I was in my second year of seminary. I was driving from Kentucky to Texas for this class reunion. Thanks, please always shout for Texas. It encourages me after the Cowboys loss. So uh, we were there for our first dinner for this weekend long class reunion and I received the award for coming all the way from Kentucky to my class reunion. I promise this will never happen to you at an Asbury reunion. But the president of my high school class said, Greg receives the award for coming the farthest and driving the farthest. And then these were his exact words next. Greg's going to seminary. I don't know about you, but that shocked the hell out of me. <laughs> I'll never forget the response of Kirby in the middle of that reunion. And I don't know when you've been in those places that you've been identified that you're living on a different path. Uh, this semester we have the great privilege of, of diving into First Peter together. Your spiritual life assistants are excited about tonight uh, being the first week of Gather. So 9 p.m., <laughs> Give it up, SLAs. And uh, 9 p.m., your hall, every floor on campus, Aldersgate. If you are a commuter student, you get to do that at 11 a.m. on Tuesdays in, in WGM and spend time with Summer Toadvine. So, and shouts for Summer. You'll be, uh, you'll be digging into these two books together. And they, they call us uh, to set apart. So the passage that we heard from in 1 Peter 1, there's two, two references uh, to exiles and foreigners. Peter is writing mostly to Gentile Christians that were living in Asia Minor. They were scattered beyond Jerusalem, and they were scattered outside of Galilee, across what we would know today as modern-day Turkey. They were undergoing persecution, the Greek word uh, for exiles and foreigners in this book, you could translate that word as resident aliens. And it really described the Gentile Christian experience there in the first century. Scott McKnight paints their experience this way. They were disenfranchised workers laboring in the cracks of a network that largely excluded them but they had found the meaning to their existence in Christian family, family that was unlike any other. Most of us in this room 
can't identify with this disenfranchised experience that marked first century Christians. Some of, the, some of you in this room can identify. You have been on that journey because of where you were raised. However, there is a Christian idea that we often draw from and are attracted to in this call to be a resident alien. Christians all the time, we say this, we are living in this world, but not of this world. And there's a tension that resides in spiritual beings on a human journey, human beings on a spiritual journey. How many of you have heard this, live in this world, but not of this world, and that phrase has been overused in your life. You have heard it so much. I'm going to ask you to suspend judgment uh, as we go there today, and we ask Jesus what it means for who he's calling us to be. He stated it most clearly when he prayed in John chapter 17. In verse 14 through 16, Jesus says, I've given them your word, and the world hates them because they do not belong to the world, just as I do not belong to the world. I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but to keep them safe from the evil one. Followers of Jesus aren't of this world, just as he wasn't of this world. And he keeps praying, make them holy by your truth. Teach them your word, which is truth. Other translations would say, sanctify them. Make them holy. Just as you sent me into the world, I'm sending them into the world. And I give myself as a holy sacrifice for them so they can be made holy by your truth. Jesus has an imagination for you in this prayer. And this is what it is. Living in this world but not of this world is about holiness. It's about being sanctified. And he prays for you to not be taken out of this world. He prays rather that though you are not of this world, he sends you into it. And what if his sending you into it is for your sanctification? What if it is for your holiness? I believe that's how we could hear that prayer. Three weeks ago, Dr. Brown uh, launched us right here in our first chapel for the semester. And he described a concept that morning, binding and blinding from uh, the author Jonathan Haidt, who wrote The Righteous Mind. He said that binding is being groupish. It's when we form ourselves on these teams. We pursue victory and not truth, close our hearts and minds to opponents. And he said that teams bind us to the shortcomings of our groups. They blunt our moral sensibilities and they lower our ability to self-reflect. So what if our pursuit of living in this world but not of this world has to navigate 
binding and blinding on an internal level. Where we, we bind too strongly to living in this world, we're blinded to what it means to not live of this world. And the contra is also true that when we are blinded in some distorted way to not living of this world, we could actually be blinded to living in this world, fully present, fully here. And so Dr. Brown's reference that morning was also to Leslie Newbegin. And, and Newbegin provides the two core realities of where First Peter wants to take us, related to being resident aliens, that we're designed to be missiological, to be engaged in the world where we live, connected, and that we are never meant to be comfortable in Zion, which, in another phrase, you could translate to mean, don't be so heavenly that you're no earthly good. We're meant to be in relationships connected. I wrestle in living in this place. To live in this world, but not of this world. One minute, it's comfortable being different. And the next minute is uncomfortable being different. There is a wrestling going out as we are being made holy, as we are being made more like Christ in living in this world, but not of it. And First Peter is loaded with characteristics of resident aliens. This book points us where Carolyn Moore uh, was unpacking last week, living by a vision on earth from what we have seen in heaven. It's where we are being called. Scott McKnight writes that Peter was encouraging Christians who were socially disenfranchised to live steadfastly before God with faithfulness, holiness, and love for each other and for everyone around them. There's three words that show up frequently in this book, and they, they help us get our, our mind around the stuff that resident aliens are made of. The first one is the Greek word anastrophe. And it's, it's a word that means way of life, how you conduct yourself, how you behave in everything you do. It's used 13 times in the New Testament, and six of those times are in this book. Resident aliens live life distinctly. But now you must be holy in everything you do, anastrophe. Just as God who chose you is holy, remember that the heavenly Father to whom you pray has no favorites. He will judge or reward you according to what you do. So you must live anastrophe in reverent fear of him during your time here as temporary residents. When Carolyn Moore shared about her own story last week, she described a, a place 
uh, early in life where she was a cultural Christian. Each of us are on a lifelong journey of dismantling attachments to cultural Christianity. What's the, what's the first phrase that comes to your mind when you hear cultural Christian? Somebody just throw some phrases out for me. I heard evangelical. I heard tradition. Is there one or two others to throw out? Not in a relationship. American. Uh, somebody said American. <laughs> These are the things that we are unpacking from that First, uh, first Peter challenges us with. Some, some phrases that came to me last week for, from some of you as well that describe cultural Christianity. Going through the motions, like showing up for church on Easter and Christmas. It's lukewarm faith, trusting God when it's convenient. Cultural Christianity claims that involvement in Christian community makes a person a Christian. Cultural Christianity looks the part because of traditions or having Christian parents. You guys name these things. I heard a common theme in all of these. Cultural Christianity is belief that's detached from behavior. It's belief without commitment. I think it was said maybe that it's belief without relationship. And first Peter gives us a map that is a drastic contrast to cultural Christianity. Christians who live like this in the first three centuries, they faced pandemics actually as well. And do you know what they did? They took care of sick people who were isolated. They, they buried people who couldn't afford a place to be buried. They cared for marginalized. As Jesus who called you is holy, so be holy as a way of life in all of your behavior. What happens when Christians live differently? Uh, chapter 2, verse 12. Live, anastrophe, such good lives among the pagans that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. How the resident aliens lived in the first century was a witness to non-believers. I hope you can hear Dr. Brown's verse from Matthew 5. Let your light so shine before others that they may see your good deeds and give praise to God. In chapter 3, verses 15 to 17, it's one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. But in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior against your anastrophe, against your good behavior in Christ, they may be ashamed of their slander. That the behavior of the 
disenfranchised Christians made those who spoke against them retract their words. A way of life. It's what resident aliens are called to. Their habits were different. I really like this, this new word I've heard, habitus. They lived by a different habitus. A re- it's a body reflexive behavior. It's so built in you that it's just how you start to live. And a book called The Patient Ferment of the Early Church, Peter Kreider says that early Christians in the first and second century, they grew in number not because they won arguments and not because they had the coolest church. They grew in number because their habitual behavior was rooted in such patience that the people around them saw them as distinct, and they were so intrigued that they were drawn. They were drawn to them. They were so cared for by what they would see them do in a pandemic that they were drawn to them. Sabbath pace made them move different. It's a pace we're being invited to this semester. A high school principal came and spoke to our campus ministry at Texas Tech about 15 years ago. And he gave everyone this framed quote that's still in my office. It's one that you may have heard before. Your life may be the only Bible that some people ever read. Habitus, being a resident alien, is a way of life. And there's two qualities that were at the top of this list of how differently they lived than everyone around them. The first chapter that we heard this morning from Madeline, verse 6, For a little while you may have had to suffer grief of all kinds of trials. These have come for the proven genuineness of your faith. Resident aliens... They suffered for doing good. The Greek word is posco, and it shows up 40 times in the New Testament, but 12 of those times are right here in this little book. And if you've lived the majority of your life in the U.S., which speaks for most of us, how do we handle suffering besides not good? The global pandemic it has caused suffering around the world. The church itself has been impacted by the pandemic. Many people have been very sick. Hundreds of thousands of people have lost their life. Pastors have held funerals. But what has consumed more of our energy and more of our time? Sometimes, maybe often, it feels like complaining about how COVID has been handled or managed or what your neighbor has done about COVID. And so if we listen to what Peter says about suffering, you'll be certain that when we spend our time complaining about the pandemic, we're part of a church that's in need of a divine reset. How we respond in suffering 
And grief is ultimately meant to do one thing, to bring praise and honor to Jesus as followers that live for his praise. It's in 1 Peter 2, verses 20 to 21. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer, if you posco for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. For the majority of us in this room raised in the U.S., periodically, either we've used it or we've heard someone else use the phrase, suffered for my faith. But talking about faith and suffering in the same breath, it has to be measured against circumstances across the world. Around the globe, anywhere from 4,000 to as many as 90,000 people lost their lives last year because of their faith. The measurements are really different because of how hard it is to qualify someone being martyred. Every day, 12 churches or Christian buildings are attacked somewhere in the world. 12 Christians are unjustly arrested or imprisoned, and another five are abducted every day. In reading through this book, of the 20 times that this Greek word for suffering is mentioned, 11 of those times are in reference to Jesus, and another nine of those times are in reference to his followers. Living in this world but not of this world, it reframes our perspective of suffering. It was expected of Christians in the first two or three centuries. And there are believers around the world living in a real encounter with suffering. How does being a resident alien change your perspective? I'll close with this final quality of resident aliens. Living differently, living distinctly under authority. That word authority comes up six times in this book. It's the Greek word for hypotasso. And before Peter addresses slaves and masters, wives and husbands, youth and elders, he writes this one verse 13 in chapter 2. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority. Submission across his words in this book looks different for Christians in some ways that you and I know we're invited into. Submission shapes you to honor everyone. Submission forms you to love people. He says that submission to thinking like Jesus makes us alert and sober. In chapter 4, he says it leads you into a deeper prayer life, and it shapes you to resist the enemy. As we're digesting these words this semester in First and Second Peter, they will reshape the way that we live. It will reveal to us how Jesus' disciples are marked by suffering and identified by who they submit their lives to. I want to close this morning uh, with the, 
the beginning of chapter 4. It's the foundation of where any resident alien roots their life. Verses 1 and 2. So then, since Christ suffered physical pain, you must arm yourselves with the same attitude that he had and be ready for suffering also. For if you have suffered physically for Christ, you're finished with sin. You won't spend the rest of your lives chasing your own desires, but you'll be anxious to do the will of God. You will be ready to do the will of God. You will be shaped by a habitus of living the will of God, living in submission to Jesus, identifying with his suffering. This is the different life. It's the life that is set apart, the life that we're made to embrace.